following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, my friends, I have some bad news. This is the last week of Flannel Graph. No! Every week, Gianna asks me, Pastor Scott, how come we can't do Flannel Graph every week? <laughs> um, well, it would be fun to do some more maybe in the future. Uh, I would like to. I love the flannel graph, and I, it seems like you guys have really liked it too. I'm happy to see that. I want to say a special word of thanks to Ariana. D'Angelo, where are you, Ariana? There she is right there. Everybody say, thank you, Ariana. <laughs> so the original art for flannel graph was done four or five years ago, maybe longer than that now. I don't remember exactly when it was. And uh, some of you know Kathy Belletti. She did most of the original work um, on the fabric and stuff. But all of it needed repair of some sort. And I threw in a bunch of new pieces each week. And Ariana has done all of that work. Um, and a thanks to Ian as well, who helped catalog the original pieces and um, put it online so we could deal with the details easily. This series would not have happened without you two, um, and especially Ariana, who really put in work week after week. So thank you very much. If you've enjoyed the Flannel Graph series, um, you know, buy Ariana a coffee or something. And, uh. So I also wanted to give you a couple of resources. If you've enjoyed this approach to Scripture where we have just kind of swept through it quickly and um, not quite comprehensively, but in that direction, I have a couple of options or, or uh, opportunities for you that you might enjoy. One is something that um, Shane Bertu recommended to me. His, his, his friend, is your, Joshua your friend? He's a friend of Shane's who does a podcast called Book, and uh, he does an excellent job with just surveying the books of the Bible. He's very entertaining, he's a very good speaker, he's very knowledgeable, and he does a pretty good job of hiding his biases. So I think that a person of faith or a person of no faith would enjoy listening to this podcast. I have enjoyed it. I've listened to the appropriate weeks each week as I've been preparing the flannel graph messages, and it's been helpful to me. And I went to seminary, so um, which I'm not like, like how awesome I am, but you know, like <laughs> clearly you are less awesome, and it might be helpful to you too. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, if you're a podcast person and you've enjoyed this, go get the book podcast. It's really, really well done. And the other thing is that uh, we mentioned this at the gallery on Wednesday. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is a kid's Bible uh, that tells all the stories of Scripture with gorgeous art, including um, mostly ethnically appropriate art. In other words, there's no lily white Jesus in this Bible. Um, The art is wonderful, and the stories are just as good. And what makes the Jesus Storybook Bible significant is that it talks about how every story, even the stories of the Old Testament before the time of Christ on earth, whisper Jesus' name. And some of the pieces that we've found in in the flannel graph, some of the newer ones, have come from me reading and listening to this uh, book with my family. And so the kids are going through the Jesus Storybook Bible all year, this ministry year, and we have a, a schedule of stories. You could pick up a copy of this, and believe me, it is really fine work and worth reading, even if you're an adult. You could read along the same stories that the kids are reading along with and then compare them to your modern adult translations and things. That would be a good thing to do, too. So the book podcast and the Jesus Storybook Bible, both things I would recommend. So today's uh, final, fourth and final flannel graph message is called Prophets and Promises. 
Israel's prophets and the kings who ignored them. Uh, And we'll talk about a a handful of the prophets of Israel in a minute. But I want to back up a little bit and pick up where we left off last week, which is that board in the back. The three boards are on the sides here and in the back. I'd encourage you to look at them and play with them before you leave today. Uh, I hope that next week they'll all be hanging on the wall. So this is probably your last chance to like, play with the pieces. And it's okay to let your kids do that too. Um, don't, you don't shoo them away from there. They'll have fun with it, I think. So last week we, we left, up with the, left off with the beginning of Israel's monarchy. We had King Saul and King David. And David's son Solomon was the third king of Israel. And you may remember that it was under Solomon's reign that the temple was constructed. So God's presence had a permanent locale in the temple, whereas when they had wandered in the wilderness, they just set up the, the, festival, or the, uh, the tabernacles and uh, the tents and, of meeting, and wherever they were, that's where God's presence was, and they followed it around. Now the temple houses God's presence permanently, um, and that's, that happened under King Solomon. Now Solomon, rather than trusting in God to preserve the integrity of the kingdom and, uh, against its neighbors and enemies, decided to take diplomacy into his own hands and into his bedroom by marrying uh, other monarchs. He took wives from the surrounding nations, right? Which, uh, if you know anything about the, the importance of purity of, of faith and things in the, in the Jewish religion, especially at that time, was not good, right? That's the theological term for it, not good. Um, and so he was, he, but the bigger problem, if you ask me, is that he's taking the protection of God's people into his own hands. Rather than trusting in God, he's trying to fix the problem um, with diplomacy and politics. We could say a lot more about how we resort to politics to try to protect the integrity of our faith and how, how terrible an idea that is but we'll save it for another time. So, King Solomon. Now, let me uh, give us a little bit of a geography lesson before we continue on here. This is the Promised Land. I'm not sure how well you can see this right here, but uh, this blue thing here, which would, if the map went high enough, would kind of go out like this into a a hot dog, kind of Lake Erie sort of shape is the Mediterranean Sea, all right? And the Holy Land, or the Holy City of Jerusalem is, uh, in a very twisted irony, right about where Buffalo would be (laughs) if it were Lake Erie. But you can see uh, some of the other geography of the area area here. Uh, This is the Jordan River, right? And... um, The Sea of Galilee, is that the little one or the big one? I always forget. Some of the events of the New Testament that you're familiar with, Jesus walking on the water and John baptizing in the river, that happened right here on these bodies of water, okay? And this is is the promised land, okay? So keep that in mind. We'll talk about that in a minute again. But uh, sometimes I think it's, these stories get disconnected, and one of the goals of Flannograph is to connect to them a little bit better, and, and geography can help us with that. So Solomon had um, plenty of sons, but two that we are concerned with in particular 
are Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Yes, Solomon was one of those parents that named his kids with very similar sounding names, so if you're not close to the family, you can never remember which is which. Which I will have a problem with in about 20 seconds, I promise. So Jeroboam had been appointed by Solomon to be the head of the laborers in Israel. And uh, when Solomon died, his other son, Rehoboam, who is the, became king, uh, was not so good with uh, labor management relations. Right? So they came to him, Jeroboam and the laborers came to Rehoboam and said, your father had a heavy yoke. Will you lighten the load for us? Will you lift our burden a little bit? And uh, Rehoboam got some counsel from his uh, advisors. He said, what should I say? And they said, King, here's what you should say. You should tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Now, <laughs> this is in the Bible. I am... Now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. That's what they told him to say. And he thought about it. And that's what he said. He left out the part about the finger and the loins, but he did say the part about the whips and the scorpions. And so this led to disagreement and discord, and eventually the splitting of the kingdom into two. Like so. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> so this guy looks meaner. I'm gonna, we're going to say that this is um, Rehoboam. He became the king in the north. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and Jeroboam. Jeroboam became the king in the south. Now here's where it gets a little bit confusing because the northern kingdom retained the name Israel. The southern kingdom took the name Judah. Ten tribes went to the north, and two, including the tribe of Judah, went to the south. And Judah was the more faithful uh, of the two. Also, importantly, Judah included the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Now, the southern kingdom, as I said, was a little bit more faithful. They're not any great example of perfect faithfulness, but they're a lot better than the northern kingdom, which almost immediately devolved into polytheism and idolatry. And do you know what they did? I'll show you what they did. Can you believe that they would be dumb enough to sculpt for themselves idols in the shape of a golden calf. Like, Flanograph was two weeks ago. <laughs> Did you not see how that went for the people? They're making golden calves in the north again already. It's crazy. Now, eventually both of these kingdoms are going to be conquered by neighboring empires. Right? And if you are a history buff, I know there's at least one in the room, you may be familiar with some of these movements of, of world history. Um, the uh, first conquest happened to the less faithful kingdom, Israel, in 722 BCE, the Assyrians conquered Israel. Right? And the Assyrian Empire was starting to take as much as they could, and they took the northern kingdom. Um, not too long after that, a couple centuries after that, in 586, 
the southern kingdom was also conquered, this time by the Babylonian Empire, which had sort of supplanted the Assyrian Empire. Uh, now, what happens next? Um, the Persian Empire, right? And then Alexander the Great conquers everything, right? Eventually, we get to the Roman Empire, which is what is in place at the time of Jesus. In the middle there, we have um, a Maccabean revolt in, uh, in the community of the Israelites. And uh, they're able to reconstruct the temple, which is destroyed when the Babylonians conquer Judah. So they make a new temple. We'll put it up here. It has that new temple smell right there. And the, what happened, the difference with the Babylonian conquest was that rather than just coming in and occupying, the Babylonians would send the citizens of the countries they conquered into exile. It makes sense if you think about it because it, it, it uh, disperses the, that uh, community's ability to uh, rebuild right, and revolt. And so when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, they took all the priests and some of the prophets and sent them out into exile in the surrounding areas. And so the people were completely disconnected from their homeland, what they understood to be the promised land that God had given them and their ancestors. And they had no, any, no further connection to the temple, which again was where God's presence was understood to be local permanently. Right. With the temple gone, what happens to God? So that's the historical context and framework um, and geography. The people are divided. They're in exile. And the, the narrative of the Bible at this time is one stream. And alongside that, or above or below it, you have this other kind of poetic stream, which is really interesting. So, for example... For example, some of the psalms are psalms of lament at being displaced from the Holy Land. And uh, I happen to be reading through the psalms personally in, in my own kind of devotional practices. And I happened this week to read Psalm 79. One of, the good, one of the good reasons to be reading the scriptures regularly is because sometimes you'll see these little serendipitous moments. And if you'd like to read along with Psalm 79, you can. But if you have the story that I just told you ringing in your ears, listen to the words of this psalm. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the air for food, the flesh of your faithful to the wild animals of the earth. They've poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? And it goes on like this. I'll tell you that for two reasons. One reason is that uh, I think it's awesome to highlight the Psalms of Lament. Somehow, these very honest, like, doubtful, questioning God, angrily poems, songs, made it into our holy scriptures, made it into our text. They are part of our story, just as the stories of triumph and the songs of joy are part of our story. I think it's really important to remember that. 
The other thing that I think is cool about looking at a psalm like this is to remember that, that the story is not told just in historical narrative, but also in poetry and in song, in, in the kind of more artistic genres of literature. Right? And it's, it's, uh, you have to acknowledge that as you're reading the Bible, but I think it's risky to elevate one over the other and say this one is true and this one is not because it's metaphor or whatever the thing may be. So we've talked somewhat throughout this series about genres of literature and we're talk- we'll talk about it all year long as we're thinking about being shaped by the words of Scripture. It's one of the things you have to know. So, finally, we now will come to the prophets. See if I make it through here. All right. So here's the, the, I'm going to use the, the, some, some specific prophets of Israel as kind of a scaffolding or a catwalk to get us through a period of history. We can't talk about them all, uh, but we'll talk about several of them. And one thing I want you to keep in mind is that uh, at this period in Israel's history, the prophets are how God's hand is present. We've had the hand of God here throughout each week of the Flannel Graph series, and sometimes it's been reaching down and speaking to particular people. With the first three kings of Israel, God spoke to the kings directly. Following that, not so much. He spoke instead to the prophets who then went to the kings and um, told them how they were messing things up in most cases. So um, prophets are how God communicates with his people during this period. Um, So let's dive in. Our first prophet is Elijah. All right. There's Elijah right there. Elijah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. He uh, was a prophet who spoke to King Ahab. There's Ahab right there. Right? Uh-huh, yeah. <clears throat> now, Ahab was a bad king. Most of them were bad. He was fond of marrying pagan wives. That probably sounds familiar to you. One in particular was Jezebel. Now, I wish that this were still on Wikipedia, but when we did Flannel Graph before, the Wikipedia entry for Abraham, for Abraham, that would be very wrong, for Ahab said, and I quote, Ahab was a playa. <laughs> because he had all these foreign wives, right? I went and looked and somebody edited it, you know, like, Aww. citation needed, apparently, I don't know. But if Ahab is a player, Elijah is a player hater, right? He should never. Elijah is prophesying to the king, saying, these are all the ways you're screwing everything up. Um, He predicted that God would bring a drought, which God did. And Elijah escaped during this drought and lived in a cave and um, was fed by... Ravens, right? Dark wings, dark words. The, he, he, they, they weighed on him and brought him food. But his main purpose in his prophetic ministry was to call people back from worshiping Baal, or Baal, as we sometimes anglicize the pronunciation. Um, Baal was either a god or was the Canaanite pantheon of gods. 
And he said this really poignant thing in 1 Kings 18.21. I love some of the language of the prophets. They, they're just so um, poignant. <laughs> he says, how long will you go limping with two different opinions? Such a great image, right? Limping with two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then worship him. One of the probably most striking um, events in Elijah's life is this kind of rap battle prophet throwdown he had with the prophets of Baal. He's the only remaining prophet of Israel, he says, but there's 450 prophets of Baal. And so he has this contest with, with them, which you probably, if you went to Sunday school as a kid, there was definitely a flannel graph of this event, right? So he says, uh, okay, 450 prophets of Baal, we're going to have this rap battle. You make, a, make an altar, will you, out of stone? Put the sacrifice on it, but don't light it. And I want you to pray to Baal and ask him to light it. <clears throat> So they do it. They make the altar. They pray. They start dancing and chanting, and they're cutting themselves with swords. It's kind of a self-flagellation to appease this God. And um, he's standing on the sidelines watching, and he starts to mock them. He's like, maybe Baal is on vacation. Do you have his cell phone number? (laughs) Have you tried texting him? And nothing happens. And then it's Yahweh's turn. Elijah says, okay, dig a trench around the altar and put 12 jars of water and douse the sacrifice and fill the trenches with water. And he prays to the Lord, Yahweh, and the altar is consumed with fire. And the part they don't tell you in Sunday school is that then he chased down the 450 prophets and had them all killed. Elijah very famously was taken to heaven in a flaming chariot, right? Horses of fire. And you can see right here, uh, observing this departure, is his um, protege, Elisha, right? Elisha was bald, which is the most important thing you have to know about him. And it's, it's, it's a lesson, kids. Do not make fun of the bald prophet because some kids made fun of the bald prophet and um, he called down bears on them and the bears devoured the children. <clears throat> Don't make fun of a bald prophet. If you stick around artisan long enough and I stick around artisan long enough, you're going to have a bald pastor. I just want you to know, I grew up in Maine and there's a lot of black bears there and... Tell your kids not to make fun of me if I get bald. All right. So our next prophet is Jonah. You all know the story of Jonah, right? Jonah is interesting among the prophets uh, because whereas almost all of the prophets are calling down wrath, God's wrath, on the people of God, on the nation of Israel, right? They're not out front of Frontier Field preaching to the masses. They are, t- they are in the church saying, you are all screwing this up, right? Especially the kings and sometimes the priests and the leaders. Jonah actually was sent to another nation. He was sent to Nineveh. Now, <clears throat> Nineveh is roughly here 
on the map, right? He's probably starting down here somewhere. He's got to go over to Nineveh. That's what God wants him to do. And uh, instead, he goes to Joppa and departs on a boat for Tarshish. Now, do you know where Tarshish is? It's on the western coast of Spain, right? So he's going for a Mediterranean vacation when he's supposed to be going to preach to the Ninevites. And this doesn't go well for him. He's on the boat and there's an enormous storm and the boat's being tossed about and they decide that they're going to cast lots to see whose fault it is that there's a storm because it's always somebody's fault, right? And if we can just figure out who it is and dispose of them in some way, things will be better. I don't normally recommend that as a, as a, as a theological construct, but in this case it happened to, to be effective because there was somebody who was at fault in this case. It was Jonah. And so he's like, don't bother with the lots, guys. I'm the one. Just throw me in the sea. And they're like, okay. <laughs> you got it. Jonah's in the sea, right? And then what, does ha- what happens then? He's, the storm stops and he gets eaten by a fish or a whale. We don't know. Who knows? This was the uh, first ever occurrence of the fail whale, right? Which was uh, a better joke in 2009, I admit, than in 2014. So the whale swallows him up. He's in the belly, in the darkness for three days. Does this sound familiar to anybody? In the dark for three days. And the whale spits him up on shore. And he decides, you know what? I've heard Spain isn't all that great this time of year anyway. I'm going to go to Nineveh after all. And he goes and preaches to the Ninevites and, um, and they repent and it, it all works out in the end um, for, for Jonah. So our next prophet, the prophet Isaiah. I hope I don't have to cough anymore because my water's all gone. I probably could use a paper towel or five. <laughs> All right, so Isaiah is a prophet to the kingdom of Judah prior to the Babylonian conquest, maybe around the time of the Assyrian conquest, but the thing with the prophecies of Isaiah is that they seem to be made to groups of people who are a couple hundred years apart, and so maybe it's not all written down by Isaiah himself, maybe it's people in an Isaiah kind of stream of prophecy. You know, you have to deal with this kind of thing sometimes with the Bible. I think it's folly to try to force um, fact onto things that don't really seem ready to accept the fact that you want to force onto them. Um, but I don't think that makes the Bible unreliable either. So I think we sort of stand in the middle on that. Thank you, Josiah. Yeah. So Isaiah is known as one of the major prophets. Now in the Bible there's 17 books of the prophets, five of them are major and 12 of them are minor. doesn't mean necessarily that some are better than the other, it just means that some are more wordy than others. Isaiah was one of the wordy ones, it's a longer, bigger book, so it's a major prophet, and the, there are 12 minor prophets. Uh, very famous passage in Isaiah chapter 6 that some of you would recognize, probably, where he receives his calling, right? He sees this vision of heaven, thank you Shane, with uh, angels dancing or flying around the throne and, and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And uh, he, he, in the presence of God, he is brought to his knees 
with the shame of his own unworthiness. Artisan's value of awe in the presence of God comes from this kind of concept. He's in the presence of God and he knows that he is... He says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. And the angels were like, we can fix that. So the... Should I use the dogma angels again? This is a very old joke too. The, the angels come... Let's use this angel. With a, a hot poker from the fireplace. Like, give me those unclean lips. And just... Right? And burns it off and, and, and purifies him. So, a lot of Isaiah's prophecies we understand to be messianic prophecies. And if you look at the language of them, it sure does match up with the story of Jesus really well. Also, if you were to ask, though, if you were to ask a Jewish interpreter, they would have other ways of understanding those prophecies which we understand to be messianic. And if you're asking me which one is true, I'm going to say yes. But certainly Isaiah, we we're going to read all kinds of Isaiah during Advent. He comes up all the time because the, you know, the language is uh, anticipating the coming of Christ in so many different ways. So, that's Isaiah. Next prophet. Let's, let's do Jeremiah. Let's put Jeremiah right here. Jeremiah is also a prophet to the, the kingdom of Judah. And it seems that the exile happened during his prophetic ministry. So the kingdom has already been divided for a long time. And he's seen, the, 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 not he personally, but a guy he knows, has seen the conquest of the north by the Assyrians. And he prophesies about the coming conquest of the Bab- from, from Babylon. He says, this is coming. It's going to happen to us just like it happened to them. I know you think we're all holy because we have Jerusalem, but we are not immune to this either. If we don't, return to, if we don't turn back to God, the same fate awaits us. And sure enough, it does. The Babylonians conquer Judah and send prophets and citizens into exile. Jeremiah remains behind, but he, part of his prophecy and part of his ministry is to send these missives to the prophets or to the, to the people of God who are in exile. And the reason I mention that is because one of the things he says is a, an absolutely central set of verses for artisan and how we understand our calling as people of God. One of the verses is printed on the, above the doorframe outside our sanctuary. When you go out after the service, look up and see it. But he says, I could probably quote it, but just in case, let me see if I can find the text here. Jeremiah 29, 4-7. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is God's message to the exiles. Don't worry. It will all be over soon. Just hang on for a second and you will get to go back to Jerusalem. No. (laughs) He says the opposite, actually. He says build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. 
Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And verse 7, which is the one that's printed on our doorframe. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. He basically says, get comfortable. You're going to be there for a while. Make yourselves at home and seek to bless the city where you live. It's not the holy land. It's not the promised land. It's not Zion. It's not the holy city. The temple is not there. But you are there. So be there with all of your being and love the people around you. They're like, you mean the ones who killed the people and remember the blood around the temple? Yes. But they brought us away from Jerusalem and now we're stuck out here. Yes. It's really a pretty remarkable thing if you think about it. Now, this is a... One of Artisan's life verses, if you'll pardon that dorky, churchy phrase, right? <clears throat> but it's not because we think of ourselves in exile in the same sense, right? Rochester has its problems, but for the most part, I think we like Rochester. And in any case, we are a lot freer in our day and age to move about the country wherever we want. And we could leave if we wanted to. So we're not in exile like we can't leave. But we are in a place that oftentimes seems at odds to our faith and its expression and foreign to God's desires for the world. Right? I believe that, it, that God calls us to the same thing he called the Israelites to, the exiles in Babylon. Buy a house, put down roots, meet your neighbors, pray for the city. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's, what, that's part of what we're all about. Jeremiah. All right, let's do two more prophets today. Oh, how about Ezekiel? Ezekiel's fun, right? Let me try to come and get out of your way here, you guys. And Ezekiel also was a prophet to Judah. He was a prophet during the exile. He is very, very strange. Very dramatic language. Um, it's fun to read, but if you happen to be a heavy drug user, maybe don't read Ezekiel. <clears throat> also, drugs are bad, but, you know, don't, I mean, it's, it's weird, weird stuff, okay? He, um, here's one of the things Ezekiel does. He lays on, his, on one side for 400 days, and then he gets up and turns over and lays on the other side for 400 days. He cuts all of his hair off and divides it into three piles, into thirds. And he throws one into the wind and he burns one. I don't remember what he did with the third one. But all of this in an effort to get his message across. If you see somebody doing that kind of stuff, you watch, right? He knows. (laughs) And he's not above being a little bit crazy to get his message across to the people. One of the... um, Did I put him up yet? I did. One of the... uh, things that he says, he has this great vision, and you may recognize some of the language in it, where the, uh, he, the Lord takes him out to this valley, and it's filled with dry bones, and, and the Lord says, prophesy to the bones, and he does, and they, they 
rattle together and they take on sinews and flesh. And they're, it's kind of like this weird walking dead sort of scene in the Valley of Dry Bones. The song we just sang before the sermon started, that uh, Just Like You song, has that phrase in it. It's just like you to, bring, to give life to these dry bones. Um, it's a beautiful image. So, um, moving on from Ezekiel, probably a lot more we could say about him, but we won't today. Let's, do, let's talk about Daniel. Daniel is an interesting character. Another prophet to Judah during the exile. Now, Daniel uh, is famous for being really good at interpreting dreams. You remember that this was also true of Joseph, and that happened in our, what was it, the second week, which is this one. And like Joseph, he rises up in the court of the pagan king. Instead of the pharaoh, it's Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he is, like Joseph, seen as a rival to some others. And so these advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar observe Daniel and they see that he's very pious and that he prays to the Lord three times a day. And they said to the king, you know what, king, we think, we sh- we think you might consider making a law that nobody can pray to anybody except you because you are so great, O king. And he says, you know what, I am pretty great. That seems like a good rule. I don't foresee any problems with that whatsoever. And he enacts the rule. And they say, well, you know, there should be a penalty, right? There's that lion's den. Maybe, king, the people who don't pray to you, after all, you are so great. This should be easy for everybody to follow. Certainly all of your advisors. Um, maybe if, you, if they don't pray to you, if they pray to anybody else, they should go in the lion's den. And he says, that's good. That puts some teeth on it. I like that. And of course, Daniel refuses to obey this law. He's a faithful Jew. And he prays. And Nebuchadnezzar is kind of left with no option but to enforce the law that he's put on the books. And he says, Daniel, you, you have to go to the lions, but maybe you should pray just in case God is willing to save you. If your God saves you, that would be awesome, but I, you know, it would look bad as a king if I didn't enforce my own rules. So sure enough, he sends, throws him into the lion's pit. And the story goes, this is another classic flannel graph story. Um, like 80% of the story makes it into Sunday school. Right? I'm going to give you the other 20%, don't worry. But so the angel of the Lord comes and shuts the lion's mouths, right? And he's safe in there all night long. And the king comes and finds him, and he's so relieved to find Daniel alive. He pulls him out of the pit, and uh, then he throws the advisors into the pit. (laughs) That's the part they don't tell you about in Sunday school, right? It's not like, no, they gave him a giraffe leg to keep them from going hungry in in the pit like they do at the zoo. No, these advisors went in the pit, and the text is very poignant in saying... Before they hit the ground, they were consumed. (laughs) There are some hungry lions. So Daniel is famous for what we would call apocalyptic prophecy. Now, apocalyptic prophecy doesn't necessarily mean um, prophecy about the end times. That's what the word apocalypse has commonly become understood to mean. But uh, apocalypse just means like an uncovering. It's sort of like a revealing of something mysterious. And so... 
uh, Daniel's prophecies, and this would, I would say, go for the ones in the book of Revelation as well, are not so much about, like, left behind kind of stuff, right? With the beasts and the numbers and the, like, microchips in your wrist to pay for your groceries and all that stuff, right? Most of these prophecies have a very contemporary application, and uh, maybe someday we'll do a series on prophecy. I would love to do that. But it's not always about... Like, I don't know. I, can't, I just can't go down that road because I'll just ramble and ramble and ramble. Suffice it to say that I think this kind of literature in the Bible is some of the most grossly misapplied literature in all of the texts. It's not to say that none of it is about the end times. In fact, I think some of it might be. But it's sort of like before where, where the, the Isaiah's prophecies have a messianic interpretation that we believe is true, but it doesn't necessarily negate the, the truth of the application for a more contemporary issue. I think the same thing might be true with these. So um, That's really not a fair... It's not fair to just drop that and leave it, but that's what I'm going to do because we are way out of time. So, there you have it. The high points uh, of the prophets of Israel, and as you look around the room, you see the high points of most of the Old Testament in the Bible. I am sad to leave it behind. I really am. It's been a lot of fun. I hope that it's been fun for you to do the flannel graph stuff. And I had a thought that maybe... Um, well, we've already thought before that we should do a New Testament flannel graph. Wouldn't that be fun to do? Probably not this year, but we'll get to it. And um, I also thought it might be nice if, we're, if we happen to be at some point going through a narrative series that we could make a little flannel graph board and maybe have some flannel graph pieces again. Because it's been really fun, and I think it actually does... I don't know if it helps you learn. It definitely helps me learn as I'm teaching. So it's kind of a cool thing. So let me tell you briefly what's coming up as we leave flannel graph behind. Next week, we start a three-week series in the book of Philippians. And two of those three sermons are going to be preached by lay people from uh, what we are calling our College of Preachers. And it's not college like they're college students because these, are, these people are doing like master's and graduate level work for reals. You, I just cannot wait for you to hear these sermons. I, I'm so, so, so excited about it. Um, but it's, it's collegial. That's what the word college means for us in the College of Preachers. And so next week, Chris Sullivan's going to preach, uh, kick off our series on Philippians. Do not miss it. Then I will preach the second message. If you want to miss that one, you probably can. And then Colleen Schneider will preach the third message in the series. And I can't wait to hear what Chris and Colleen have to say um, to us and what God has to say to us through them. So that's exciting. Following those three weeks, uh, we were, we'll kick off a series about the family of Abraham, where we will take this, um, the end of week one of Flannel Graph and unpack it much more and uh, talk about that. There's a, we'll have a great, great guest lecturer during that series as well. And also, it will conclude with an event that's going to be, I think, really, really neat, which is an interfaith panel. We're going to have representatives from the Abrahamic faiths uh, here to discuss what Abraham means to their religious traditions. So um, I'm looking for a Christian minister from a different tradition from ours, and we have a rabbi and an imam who are lined up to come and, and share what Abraham means to their tradition. And um, really excited about that as well. And then if you can believe it, following that series, we're already to Advent. So start playing Christmas music on the way home, is what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I'm just kidding. Don't play Christmas music until the day after Thanksgiving. That's the rule. All right. All of God's people follow that rule, don't they? Well, (laughs) I know. I just like to poke fun at you people who play Christmas music in October. I just don't get it. All right. So that's Flannel Graph. Um, Do take in the boards and enjoy them uh, today, and we'll have them hanging probably until the beginning of Advent when we're going to have a some different artwork that will start to go up there, which would be pretty cool too. So let's pray together. Thank you, God, for this big sweeping story and for the fact that you invite us to be part of it. Help us to see our part in this big story, we pray. Through Christ our Lord, amen. I want to invite you now to come and receive communion at the table. Uh, Our table at Artisan is an open table, which means that anybody is welcome to partake of the bread and the cup, and you don't have to be aligned with any particular uh, stream of the Christian faith. You simply have to be a person who's following Jesus and trusting him. And so you can tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. We have both wine and juice. Of course, you should choose which is more appropriate for you and your family. If you would collect your children... um, You can have them take communion with you, or if you wish to take it by yourself, you can do that. Please collect them immediately following that, because this series uh, has, I've preached long messages, and um, say a big thank you to the teachers when you see them, because they've been uh, having a little bit more to do down there than usual. So uh, we have a couple more songs to sing together. Let's continue in worship, and I invite you to respond however the Spirit may be speaking to you this morning. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.